Hello, everyone, and welcome to Consumer Watchdog's Rage for Justice Report, our weekly conversation about the current issues that we're exposing, confronting, and changing. I'm your host, Carmen Balber, Executive Director of Consumer Watchdog, and this week we want to really focus on the national scrutiny that's being directed at California's Medical Board and its long history of protectionism of bad doctors who are harming people. Um, to help me do that uh, and to put a human face on why this matters so much, I've invited Alka Airy, a San Francisco resident and a patient advocate who witnessed those problems at the board firsthand when her sister was injured and ultimately lost her life because of medical negligence. Um, welcome to the podcast, Alka. Thank you, Carmen. Did I get that right? Are you, uh, are you from San Francisco? I am from San Francisco. I wasn't quite sure if that was uh, just your sister I was remembering. So good. I, I've got you. I've got you located in the world. Um, well, <laughs> you know, let's let's just start at the beginning. Tell me about Shilpa. So um, Shilpa was my older sister, and um, we were like twins. We were inseparable. Um, I really lucked out getting a sister like her. She was just just an incredibly smart, um, hopelessly optimistic person. Um, she just had a magnetism and a sense of humor that drew people toward her. She was so generous and always put other people's needs ahead of her own. And um, she actually ran her own consulting business. Um, she was a research scientist by training, but she was focused on um, various therapeutic areas, but most recently in the area of rare genetic diseases in children. So she was greatly committed to... Um, finding treatments and cures and helping others. And um, that's what makes it so tragic that what happened to her was really just um, rather incredible. She was trying to save kids, which is so admirable. Um, so, exactly. So as I understand it, she went into the hospital for a fairly routine surgery, um, but afterwards didn't feel well and had to go back to the ER. And that's when things started going terribly wrong. Exactly. She, um, they, they found she had a high white blood cell count, and so they admitted her and um, for an exploratory endoscopy and, in the meantime, scheduled her for a CT scan. And they gave her um, contrast dye, which she was actually allergic to and should not have been given it. And that created a series of vomiting episodes over the next few hours, and it intensified right up until the endoscopy. And um, for whatever reason, the anesthesiologist chose not to intubate her while giving her general anesthesia. And um, intubation protects your airway. So with hers unprotected, um, the moment she was administered anesthesia, it removed her natural gag reflex, and she vomited, and it went straight into her lungs and instantly burned them. Mm. And then, and, um, go ahead. Uh, well, it was just it, it was incredible um, that something like that could happen because it's a worldwide standard of care in medicine that if a patient is actively vomiting, um, an anesthesiologist knows they're supposed to protect the airway. And um, so it was a huge mess. It was very obvious and quite surprising that something like that could happen in this country and in California. 
Well, clearly an error um, that really led to catastrophic results. She, uh, she that resulted in lung failure. She was in a coma, um, and then spent a long time trying to recover from that basic error that she experienced. Correct. Exactly. I mean, she was not just on one form of life support, but two. And she was on life support for 25 days. Um, A part of that time was in a medically induced coma. And it was a miracle she survived. Even the doctor said it was a miracle. But she was left with just 20% lung function. And she was completely deconditioned from being in the ICU for so long. So she had to learn how to walk, talk. I mean, she was forced to start from scratch, all the while tethered to an oxygen tank. And in that, um, and I I know um, from uh, having uh, watched your story that you um, were pretty instrumental in helping her get through these years of attempted recovery. Absolutely. I I was there in the hospital with her every day um, for 15 hours a day. Um, you know, for a short time, they would have to kick me out at, at night. But um, I was there every day. And, you know, I was just so shocked with how this could happen. And, um, and what I learned also is that because I've been in the hospital before for surgery and they've gone well and, and doctors and nurses are really great with providing details and explaining procedures. But when something goes wrong, they stop talking. And that's, I think, what shook me to my core was that I spent 15 hours every day in a hospital and they weren't giving me answers. They weren't keeping me in the loop. They kept me in the dark. And when my sister emerged with just 20% lung function, I knew we had a battle in front of us. And if she was going to recover, she needed all the support she could get. And I knew I couldn't trust the doctors. I had to question everything. And um, that really just shook me to my core. I never expected it. You had to be an advocate, something that so many people don't realize that half of medical care, especially if something goes wrong that shouldn't have, um, involves having to advocate for yourself, having someone there who can speak for you if you can't do it for yourself. So she was lucky to have you there. Um, ultimately, though, um, she became the victim of yet another uh, uh, another instance of negligence that I, I, I hesitate to call it an instance, but she needed a lung transplant, correct? And she never got it. Exactly. And she never got it. We, um, we thought, you know, at, at the previous hospital, at the first hospital, um, you know, nobody actually told us what happened. When she was discharged from the hospital, nobody told her. And we requested medical records and um, naturally did not receive a complete set of records. So we knew we needed to transfer her care to another hospital. And um, we went to the only hospital in San Francisco that provides lung transplants. And so we essentially had no choice. Um, And we certainly got the impression that they were going to step up 
and do the best for Shulpa. And at the time, we thought she was in safe hands. Um, so she really focused herself on recovery, and we honestly thought she was in safe hands. We never questioned her care. But I would say probably in about the anesthesia error occurred in 2014, and it was in 2017 when she started noticing a change in her health, and she was needing more supplemental oxygen. And um, she went to her team at, at the hospital, and they essentially brushed it off and didn't think much of it. A few months later, she was hospitalized, um, and um, they thought she had pneumonia, but it turned out she didn't. That was actually the first warning sign that they ignored. Um, she continued to decline fairly rapidly in 2018. And, um, and it was only in June that her team finally took her feedback seriously and realized, oh, she needs the lung transplant now. She needs it urgently. Um, she continued to decline. And that's when they discovered she had heart failure. And all this time, she had not been referred to a cardiologist, though she had asked about seeing a cardiologist. Um, when the lungs don't function, um, it puts strain on the heart, and eventually it compromises the heart. Um, I mean, that's something you learn in basic high school biology. So it was really strange that they wouldn't let her see a cardiologist, um, but she trusted them. And, and so in the summer of 2018, when she learned she had heart failure that was caused by pulmonary hypertension, and it wasn't just early stage heart failure, it was end stage, uh, we were all shocked. It was a huge myth. How could a whole team of some of what we were led to believe were the top pulmonologists in San Francisco, how could so many not catch this? And pulmonary hypertension is within their purview. So it was quite shocking. And we had other specialists at the hospital in cardiology, um, in particular, even just the regular hospitalists, the general hospitalists, they were all shocked that my sister had 20 to 30% lung function over four years, was on supplemental oxygen, and not one physician had referred her to a cardiologist. The entire cardiology team told us they were shocked that this is when they were first introduced to her. And what happened at the first hospital then began at the second hospital. The physicians responsible for the mistake stopped giving us answers. They actually refused treatment and they refused to work with my sister for a lung transplant. And um, we learned that apparently our questions, specifically, how did my sister get heart failure at the end stage suddenly? Um, why didn't you ever look at her heart? I mean, very basic questions that were reasonable in my view. Apparently those questions made the team uncomfortable. And 
they said our questions made them uncomfortable, but then they never considered how their negligence had made my sister feel. And yet she was the patient and she was the one dying. And, um, you know, eventually my sister got listed for a lung transplant, but within a few days she declined. She ended up back in the hospital and um, she declined further within a few days, went into cardiac arrest. And what I later discovered is that they administered a drug that she was allergic to again and didn't realize it. And when they did, they hid the test results from our family and asked us to pull life support. And if I hadn't found out about the test results, if one physician hadn't stepped up and revealed the test results, I would never have known about any of this. And, um, and just as with the first hospital, I never received a set of medical records. Um, I'm actually still trying to get the complete set of medical records. And um, never received an explanation, never received even an apology for any of this. But I can't um, can't imagine what you've been through. Yeah, (laughs) I I just, I I think what really surprised me in this whole experience was being silenced. Um, Having a physician, and that was the director of the lung transplant program, tell both my sister and I, if you want a lung transplant, you will have to stop asking questions about your care and treatment. And a social worker with the lung transplant team who also have to sign off on the listing agreement asked the same of us. It's shocking. And and this is actually what happens um, in our medical system when mistakes happen. Well, they call I'm that, not sure how it's legal. It, there's a name for it. Much like police um, are, are sometimes referred to as having a blue wall of silence uh, when misconduct occurs. Uh, in the hospital setting, it's called a white wall of silence. And when errors happen, information shuts down and patients are told not to ask questions. And if they do, uh, the consequences are what happened to you and your family. I'm, I'm so sorry about that. Um, you know, and it's, it's, these mistakes should never occur, but the re, but they do. And when they do, that's what we have, are supposed to have regulators for. We're supposed to have people who are watching, uh, the people who are licensed, uh, to take care of our health and disciplining them and correcting errors, uh, when they occur. And unfortunately in California, that's not happening either. Um, and I wonder if I can get you to t- uh, talk to me a little bit about what happened to you when you tried to um, get the state to act on these mistakes. And, you know, I'll preface it with um, just a little bit of information about uh, that national scrutiny that I mentioned. There was recently a um, investigative series on CBS This Morning that looked into the California Medical Board and its history of protecting bad doctors from accountability. Um, and they interviewed 
a whistleblower in California who is a public member of the medical board. The medical board has eight doctor members and seven public members. So the doctors uh, have the majority vote on the board. And what this public member um, has been uh, impel compelled uh, to come forward with is the fact that, as he puts it, this board protects doctors and that that protection of protectionism quote, costs patient lives. And so I know, um, Elka, that you tried to get the California Medical Board uh, to act on your sister's case. Do you, do you want to share what happened um, when you tried that? Absolutely. I reached out to the Medical Board and um, I went to their website and followed their instructions and submitted a letter. And um, I thought that would be the start of an investigation process. And instead, um, that's certainly not what occurred. And um, from what I understand, my complaint was forwarded to a medical consultant who reviewed the medical records obtained from the hospital. But that was it. Um, there was no review of other documents outside of the medical record, I wasn't given an opportunity to provide those. Um, I wasn't even interviewed. Um, and a few weeks after the medical consultant had the complaint file, um, he closed it just a few weeks later. And I received a generic response stating that the medical consultant found no issues and my complaint was closed. I wasn't given an explanation for any of it. Um, and that's when I reached out to the medical board. And I have to say, it is very challenging trying to get through on that phone number. Um, but I was persistent. And I eventually was able to talk to a supervisor. And she explained to me that, um, you know, they actually don't conduct interviews of any parties, whether it's a patient or their family or even the physician, and that there is a questionnaire that a medical consultant will prepare and send to a physician, but it's optional to complete. So naturally, they rarely receive a completed questionnaire. So, you know, it, to me, that's not really an investigation if only one set of records, if a partial set of records are reviewed um, and nobody is interviewed. Um, and my experience, at least with my sister's first medical error involving the anesthesia, um, that doctor did not admit to his mistake in the medical record. And I think human nature tells us most people are not going to document, I made a mistake and, um, you know, provide the details for, for that mistake. That just doesn't happen. Um, hospitals control the medical record. So they can manipulate the record. They can withhold certain sections, as I learned in my experience with the first hospital. So I think it's rather unfair to only consider one side's records and not even consider the patient's records, their notes, emails. Um, I had copies of um, voicemail that I could have shared. Um, I even had recordings of my sister in the hospital. 
that she apparently took because she didn't trust her doctors. And um, we had videos and photographs we could have shared, but I wasn't allowed to provide those. And eventually, after much convincing, the supervisor allowed to review some records. But then the problem was, how do I get those records to the medical board? Apparently, the only way to do that is by fax machine. And, you know, fax machines aren't exactly easy to, to send hundreds of pages of documents. So that limited the amount of information I could provide. So um, I did that. And then within two days of faxing additional pages, I got the same form response that, you know, my complaint was closed. And, and that was it. And, and my sister experienced a series of errors. She lost her life. And it didn't matter to the medical board. What you're describing is a system that's stacked uh, to, uh, to consider the opinions and actions of the medical staff above all else. I mean, when we're talking about it, the irony, as you said, of taking the records created by the person accused of wrongdoing as the only record of the case to determine whether or not to move forward is just pretty shocking in and of itself. But as you said, um, the failure to even talk to you once to find out um, what information you might have in addition that might bolster the case, that might explain what happened, that might give them information that the doctor didn't necessarily provide or was not in the medical records is exactly what we hear from too many families, that this system is set up to dismiss complaints um, as quickly as possible, and even those that do go forward run into a series of walls and hurdles that are set up ultimately uh, to keep bad doctors in practice. So I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry that what you got from the medical board was what we've heard from so many people that, um, you know, they did not adequately investigate serious investigations of, of harm. You know, it's just really surprising. And after my sister's death, you know, I, I've had more time to, to research other state agencies. I mean, I did file complaints with other agencies and I got to see how they handle their investigations. And I was really surprised how the Board of Registered Nursing has a far more thorough process. Um, and it just surprised me that the medical board would not do something similar. Um, well, we would be, so the, the medical board failed to uh, discipline um, the hospital and the doctor uh, involved in the various um, errors that your sister experienced. Um, of course, when no consequences occur from a medical error, then practices aren't changed. You know, if that first anesthesiologist had been disciplined in any way, perhaps they would have uh, been more thoughtful about when to when it was necessary to intubate patients. Uh, but because there was no uh, no accountability, practices don't change. Um, and I just want to make sure we don't forget the other um, the other side of your quest for for justice for Shilpa, uh, which is your um, her effort 
in fact, um, initially after her first um, medical error, that she brought um, a lawsuit uh, in an attempt to, you know, a medical negligence case in, a t in an attempt to get justice um, in her case. But um, the uh, extreme tragedy uh, of her case is that when she passed away, um, the case was essentially no longer worth anything. That it was more valuable mm -hmm. when she was alive, but because of the state's cap on compensation in medical negligence cases, a person with no dependents, uh, their life is worth $250,000, and that's the extent of it. Exactly. And um, I think what also added to the tragedy was that even for the four years that Shulpa suffered, um, we were still unable to recover any of her lost wages or medical expenses or even the cost of her funeral. Um, her case completely went away all because of the limitations imposed by MIGRA. Well, we will, um, I think, uh, maybe bring you back, Elka, to talk a little bit more about that legal saga. Um, I really wanted to focus on the medical board today because they're they're under scrutiny and it's it's well-deserved, but um, uh, Shilpa's case is a um, textbook example of why we need to update that cap, which of course you're involved in our efforts um, to pass the Fairness Act, which will be on the a ballot in November 2022 and do just that, index the cap uh, for inflation, so the value of a person's life is not so low as uh, as accounted for in the law that they can never get justice, can never find an attorney. So we'll come back and and talk about that again. Um, I know there's a there's a lot of ins and outs of what happened to you in in, in that circumstance as well. But uh, you know, I just want to thank you so much for sharing Shilpa's story. She sounds uh, like she was an amazing person um, um, and had such an advocate in you um, as she you know, as she fought to, fought for her life. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share her story. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for being willing to tell it. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. Um, for more information, you can actually um, uh, watch a video uh, with Elka sharing more of Shilpa's story at consumerwatchdog.org backslash injured patients. Um, you can learn more about the ballot initiative, uh, which we hope you will all vote for in November 2022 at fairnessact.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podca podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Carmen Balber, and this has been the Rage for Justice Report.